Terry and Sherry. <clears throat> Let me read that last verse. I know we read the words of Jesus a moment ago. Let me read verse five once more. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from the other person's eye. Today we're talking about uh, judgmentalism. And because judgmentalism is, um, is kind of a tricky thing, I want us to take a, a, a brief test. I'm going to ask you four questions and then you'll uh, make a decision. You'll answer privately whether you think this is judgmentalism or not. Number one, how about this? You should not be dating that man. He's been married before and he doesn't even have a high school diploma. Now that sounds to me judgmental. Or this, you're sitting watching your children play in the park and some other parent approaches you. Hey there, I don't know you, but I've been watching your kids and you really should discipline your children more. Here's a book to read about being a better parent. Well, that, that sounds a little judgmental to me. What about this one? A pastor or a church leader says privately to a member of the congregation, it seems apparent that um, you're cheating on your spouse. And if that's true, you're going to have to step aside from teaching your Bible study class until you make things right. Now that's a hard conversation, but I don't think that's a judgmental conversation. We're gonna talk about that in a minute. We, within the family, have a responsibility to hold each other accountable. What about this one, the final one? Please give me your keys. You've had too much to drink. I cannot let you drive home. Now that doesn't sound judgmental to me. That sounds like just being a good, a good friend. You see, this idea of judgmentalism is a bit, it's a bit tricky. It's a bit complicated. What is and what is not? We're supposed to understand that there's right and there's wrong and we're not supposed to turn a blind eye to that. On the other hand, pettiness, and harshness and mean-spiritedness and, uh, and an exaggerated interest in the sins of other people. Now that's the judgmentalism that I believe Jesus is warning against. That pettiness, that pettiness, that harshness, that mean-spiritedness, that exaggerated emphasis or, or interest in the, uh, the sins of other people. That I believe is what has crossed the line into what Jesus warns us about in these interesting words of his in Matthew 7. Jesus is not suggesting we ignore right and wrong. Jesus is not suggesting anything goes. But Jesus is making the distinction between a witness and a judge. Let's think about that. A witness observes something happen and makes a determination in his or her mind that was right or that was wrong. A judge, on the other hand, makes a decision about the future of that person. This, this accused who's been, in this case, we're imagining, has been found guilty and decides this is the punishment, these are the, these are the consequences, this is what you will, how you will pay for what you have done. So you're walking down the street and 50 yards in front of you, you see a man emerge from the alley and he knocks, the, he grabs a lady's purse and he knocks her down and he runs. And 
And you think, well, that's wrong. And you run. If you could, you'd catch him. But you run up with others and you check on the lady and you make a decision in your mind. That was a crime. That was wrong. But the judge, on the other hand, so this person now stands in front of the judge. Now the judge is going to wrap his or her gavel and say, now that you've been found guilty, then there are consequences. And these are the these are the consequences. This is how long you will serve. This is where you will serve. You see the difference between a witness and a judge to witness something and make a decision. I believe that's wrong is not bad. That's not unchristian. It's not what Jesus is talking about. Judge mentalism, however, is when we act like the judge and we punish people. We withhold our affection. We say, well, I'm just not going to like him or her. We ruin his or her reputation. We talk about him or her behind their back. We write them off. We say, I'm just not going to give him or her another chance. Or we heap shame on him or her. There's a difference between being a witness of right and wrong and being a judge. I believe it is the judgmentalism that Jesus is talking about when he says, if you have a plank in your own eye, you're not really qualified to remove the speck from somebody else's eye. To help us remember that, there are some questions or some questions, answers, some things we need to remember. Number one. Holding each other accountable in the church is one thing. Sitting in judgment on those outside the church is another thing. Sitting or holding each other accountable within the church family is one thing. Sitting in judgment on people outside the church is another thing. Notice the last phrase of today's parable. You hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's or sister's eye. He's talking about our Christian brothers and sisters in, in 1 Corinthians 5. And it was probably a small church, the Corinthian church, probably a house church. There was a man guilty of terrible immorality. And Paul wrote to the Corinthian church and said, you got to deal with this. This is what he said. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Huh? So within the church, we have a responsibility to hold each other accountable. But to, but remember the pettiness, the harshness, the mean-spiritedness, that, that exaggerated emphasis on the sins of people outside. That's what Jesus is warning us against. I talked earlier in that little hypothetical test. I said, what if, what if there's a person teaching a Sunday school class and, and that person's having an affair and, and, and it's obvious. And so a, a pastor or a church leader goes to him or her and says, look, if this is true, the standards for spiritual leadership are high. And until we make things, until you make things right, you're going to have to step away. That I believe is biblical accountability. It's the responsibility of the church to hold each other accountable. However, to demean, to malign, to demonize, to shame uh, those on the outside, that's really not our, that's really not our business. Does that mean we should surrender our convictions? Of course not. But pettiness, harshness, mean-spiritedness, and exaggerated interest in the sins of people outside never changed anybody. Nobody ever changed because people in the church yelled at them. 
And it certainly does not make the church an attractive place for people to turn when they're in trouble. So the first thing to remember is there's a difference between biblical accountability within the church family and being petty and harsh and mean and maligning people and demeaning people who are on the outside. Number two, we better not judge others if we have planks in our eyes or skeletons in our closets. Jesus said, you hypocrite, first take the plank out of your own eye. He spoke of hypocrisy fairly often. Let's be careful. Hypocrisy is not imperfection. Hypocrisy is not sinfulness. If if hypocrisy were imperfection or sinfulness, we'd all be uh, hypocrites. It is no more, for example, it is no more hypocritical for a sinner to come to church than it is for a sick person to go to the hospital. Hypocrisy is not imperfection. Hypocrisy is pretending. Hypocrisy comes from an old Greek word from the Greek dramas. It referred to the actor. You remember maybe the the, the Greek actors in the dramas wore masks to depict their emotion and to depict the character they were playing. That was, that's where the whole, that's where the word came from. So a hypocrite is one, of course, who pretends to be one thing when in fact he or she is, is another. And sometimes people who are pretending are trying to hide something. Sometimes moral crusaders are crusading as a smokescreen to cover the planks in their eyes and the skeletons in their closets. As an example, in 2017, A U.S. congressman was an avid, passionate, pro-life crusader, an anti-abortion crusader. And then it was discovered he was having an affair and a local newspaper found some text messages that they revealed in which he was asking his mistress to have an abortion. Sometimes moral crusaders, people who are so passionates who speak with such fervor about issues sometimes are actually covering for that plank and that and that skeleton if we have planks and skeletons we ought to be real careful about judging people consider king david david of course stole the wife of uriah bathsheba had an affair with her and then had uriah killed in order to cover it up Nathan, a courageous prophet who had the ear of King David, came to the king and he said, King, something has happened that I need to report to you. There is a man in your kingdom who has lots of sheep. He's got sheep and uh, cattle and alpacas and he's got all kinds of, all kinds of livestock. And he had a dinner the other night, invited some friends over and instead of slaughtering one of his own sheep, he went down the street to a poor man who had one sheep, a little ewe lamb. It was his pet. And he took that lamb just because he could. And he went back to his house and he slaughtered that and fed his neighbors with his neighbor, his, his neighbor, fed his guests with his neighbors, one little ewe lamb. And David was outraged with a, a righteous indignation. And he said, that man must die. And Nathan said, easy now, king. I actually made that up and I I'm really not talking about some man in your kingdom. I'm talking about you and I'm talking about you stealing Bathsheba from Uriah and having him killed. And and David, to his credit, now convicted of his sin, confessed, I have sinned before God. David was a good man, hear me, who when he 
witnessed what he believed was wrong, was willing to say so. But he just forgot that there was a plank in his eye and a skeleton in his closet. That's why Galatians 6.1 says, if someone falls into sin, forgivingly restore him. Saving your critical comments for yourself, you might be needing forgiveness before the day is out. So we better not judge others if we have planks in our eyes and skeletons in our closet. Another thing to remember, we almost never know the whole story. We almost never know the whole story. When you have a plank in your eye, it's really difficult to see. Carrie's parents had taken us out to eat. This was a long time ago, 35 years ago probably, in Elizabethtown, Kentucky. We got out of the car in the parking lot and I heard a plane overhead and I stopped and watched the plane. And it was, as my daddy would have said, and maybe you've heard this phrase, it was cutting didos. Now, I don't know what a dido is, but it was, it was, he was doing flips and dives right over Elizabethtown, Kentucky. And I was so mad. I thought, how careless, how reckless, how, how could you do over all the, and I said to Carrie's parents, there has to be a law against this reckless behavior over a heavily populated area. And then you won't, then I couldn't believe my eyes. The plane circled around and, and, and was heading in low right toward the parking lot where we were. And I thought, he's going to land in the parking lot. I was beside myself. And then I noticed standing just outside the parking lot was a guy with a little box with a kind of control stick on it. <laughs> and the plane landed four feet long. <laughs> remote controlled plane landed very safely right in the parking lot. But I got to tell you, from down here, it looked like a real plane. You see, I saw clearly what was happening. I just didn't see clearly what was happening. I'm afraid we make judgments based on incomplete data. We see what happens, but we never can know the, the motives. We never can know the hearts. We never can know the, the circumstances of someone's action. We can see the behavior, we can see the action, but we never know what's going on behind the scenes, behind closed doors. We never know what's going on in their heart. We don't know, we don't ever know the whole, sometimes it looks like a real plane when in fact it is not. Jesus would not want us to give up on our convictions. He would not want us to backtrack and to sacrifice biblical standards. But he would warn us, those of us with planks in our eyes and skeletons in our closets, he would warn us to be really, really careful. He would, he would warn us that we don't know the whole story. He would warn us that there's a difference between 
holding each other accountable, which is an, an important thing, and demeaning and maligning and shaming people who are outside the circle. I can't get over a story that one of Philip Yancey's friends told to Philip Yancey, my favorite writer. And Yancey tells the story in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? His friend works in Chicago among people on the margins, people on the periphery, people on the streets. And once there was a prostitute who came to this man for help. She had a drug addiction, of course was selling the most important part of her life to, to, to fund that addiction. And she confessed to him that, with, he said with tears staining her face, he, she, she confessed to him that she had been farming out her own daughter to perverted men in order to pay for her drug habit. And the man, even him, even he who had who'd seen just about everything, even he was stunned. And he was grasping for some way to, to offer some help. And, and so he, he said to her, have you ever thought about going to a church to get some help? Yancey's friend said, I'll never forget the look of astonishment on her face. And she said, church, church. Why would I go to church? Why, they'd make me feel worse than I already do. I know church can't solve all the problems. Every day, almost every day, at least every week, several times a week, people come to these doors with problems we can't solve. There are people off the streets with, with mental illness and we're just not, we're just not equipped and we do the best we can, but there are lots of problems that churches can't solve, I know. And I know there are biblical standards that we must not sacrifice. But my goodness, church. Why would I go to church? They would make me feel worse than I already do. See, we've wandered a long way from, from Jesus because people went to Jesus People went to Jesus who, even when they knew he didn't think what they were doing were right. Because they understood that his love was so tender and real that it trumped his, his moral sense of right and wrong. And he was willing to love people. And they knew that so they, I don't think anybody would have ever said about Jesus, Jesus, why would I go to Jesus? He'd make me feel worse than I already do. I don't think anybody ever would have said that. But I'm afraid they say it about us. When people look in at us from the outside, I'm afraid that they don't see us as they saw Jesus. I'm afraid they see, see us as harsh and hypercritical. I'm afraid they see us as, as finger pointers and tongue waggers. I'm, I'm afraid they see us as stone throwers and mud slingers. I'm afraid people don't always look at us like they looked at Jesus. I, I want to tell you a story I've told before. It's hard for me not to retell stories that have shaped me so deeply as this one did. But we were in Richmond at Bon Air where Jim and I served together. 
And one of our friends, Valerie Carter, Dr. Valerie Carter began this ministry among prostitutes on the streets of Richmond. And, and there were several of us, usually about a dozen, who would walk those streets the first Friday night of every month. We always walked together. They recognized us. They knew who we were. But this particular Friday night, uh, Valerie Carter and I were walking on the sidewalk headed this direction. There were people walking in the same direction on the other side of the street, on the other sidewalk. And up ahead, uh, we saw a car pull over, driven by a man. And a, a young lady got out of the car, closed the door. He drove away. It was obvious what had transpired. She turned and happened to walk in the direction that toward Valerie and me. And when we met her, we said what we always said, are you safe? And can we pray for you? And if we can pray for you, what can we pray for? She said, please pray for my baby. He's sick. And then she paused. She knew, we knew why she was there. And she said, I don't know any other way to provide for him. And she walked away. If I'd seen that on the news, if I'd seen a car pull over driven by man, a young lady dressed kind of flashy, get out, I would probably have labeled her trashy. If I'd been driving down that street and I'd seen that car pull over and a man driving and a young lady get out, I, I might have thought she was a tramp. But I looked, please hear me, I looked into her eyes. And when I looked into, her, looked into her eyes, I saw not evil, but desperation. And in my heart, I felt no condemnation or judgment. I felt pity and compassion. Because I didn't judge her from afar, I looked into her eyes. Now that didn't mean I thought what she was doing was good or healthy or right. But I looked into her eyes. And maybe that's the point. To judge people from our dens watching television. To judge people riding down the road and seeing something going on. It's easy to think badly of people. Maybe we ought not ever judge anybody until we look into their eyes. I'm not talking about backing off of morality. Remember though the difference between a witness and a judge? Maybe we ought not sit in judgment on anybody until we look into their eyes. Problem is, it's hard to see specks in other people's eyes when we have planks in our own.
And we're going to sing a hymn of invitation, 501. We invite you to, <clears throat> to come forward to say, I want to be a part of, our, of this church. I have felt led. I've been worshiping here. I feel like this is where I should plant my life. Or maybe you would come and say, I've never gone public with my faith in Jesus. And we'd be thrilled to talk with you. To plan, we have some baptisms coming up. We'd be thrilled to talk with you about that. Or maybe this would be the first conversation you've ever had about following Jesus. Nothing would thrill me more. I and some other ministers are going to be down here waiting. And we're going to wait for you while other people sing.